0: How you doing, everybody? And welcome to another amazing episode of the John Riley Project. We're taking the show on the road, bringing the podcast studio here to Ramona, California. I'm so pleased to have as my guest Mark Deschero from Classic Rotors Museum. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. Glad to have you out here. You know, we have a mutual friend. Mr. Pete Nealed, right? Oh, yes, he's, yes, He's not. He's off camera right now. You can't see him. But, <laughs> um, anyways, Pete brought me here a couple weeks ago, and you showed me your museum, and I was just blown away by the amount of aircraft, helicopters. I mean, it was amazing. And, and we said we got to do a podcast. We have to share this story because it's such an amazing story. So, God, tell me a little bit about the museum. How you got started in this? So years
1: ago, I it started off with thinking that helicopters were the way for me to travel to and from my home to work and and uh, at the time I was 22 years old and I said that's what I'll do is I'll I can buy property out in Alpine which is kind of in the back country but it was affordable and then I said and then what I'll do to get to work is I'll just get a helicopter and fly to work so yeah that was the idea In, in reality it doesn't really happen that way but so I said well how am I going to get a helicopter? So I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to build one. So that's what I started off with. Wow. And uh, uh, there was a company out there called Rotaway, and they made this homemade kit, and you would just put it together in your backyard and teach yourself how to fly.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Really? I mean, that must have been, like, really difficult to do, right? Well, back during the time, I thought, hey, this
1: is easy. And then I found out once I... After two and a half years building the helicopter. Two and a half years? Two and a half years to build it. Because it it comes in a box with a bunch of tubes. So, the first thing you had to do is you got to start cutting the tubes and welding everything together. Did it give you
0: like an instruction manual the, to assemble? Actually, very good instruction manual, yeah. but it was a little
1: more than what I was expecting to do. But I was a machinist, so the parts that you had to make and machine, that wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. But it still took two and a half years. Wow. And uh, so, after uh, building this thing, then it came time okay, now you're going to teach yourself how to fly because that's the way they portrayed the kit that you just put it together and you start teaching yourself how to fly. So I did it. I'm following the the directions, so to Mm -hmm. speak. And, um, and it was kind of funny because the way they portray their kit is they say, the only way you're going to be successful is follow the directions. And they would show these, they had videos that would show a person what's wrong with this video. And in one video, the guy's building not looking at the other directions and the other guy is building and he's looking at the directions. Mm -hmm. Well I'm definitely a direction type of guy. Okay. I like to read them, understand exactly what it is I'm going to do. Then it got to the point where okay now you have to learn how to fly it. So I just kept reading it. Well when I showed up on their front door and I says oh by the way I, I, I can hover. They said what do you mean you can hover? I said, yeah, I, I, I got down to where I hovered. And that's why I figured I'd come in and now get my instruction from the factory. Right. And I remember going out there and the guy goes, so you can hover, huh? So we, we get in one of the factory helicopters. Mm-hmm. And this guy just sits there and he goes, go ahead. <laughs> hover me. Right, right. And I said, oh, OK. Now, Now, for me, I've been practicing with my helicopter by myself. And as I'm pulling up on what we call the collective, which lifts the helicopter up into the air, I'm realizing, hmm, this is a lot higher because there's two of us in it. Yeah, I've never, it was only just me before. So I'm pulling and pulling and pulling and I'm doing it very slowly. This guy sitting next to me, he realizes, God, this guy's gonna hover this helicopter. So all of a sudden you see him start to cover the controls, get closer, Mm -hmm. he went from this position to, okay, it looks like this guy really thinks he can lift this off. And I picked up another and he's like, well, that's pretty good. Go move forward about 10 feet. I moved forward 10 feet. I, I moved to the, he says, move to the left, move to the right. Let's do a full 360. And right around that time, the wind kind of kicked up a little. And what there's a difference between commanded control mm-hmm. versus the wind blowing you. So that was an uncommanded you know, action. The helicopters started moving to the left, and when I was alone at myself on my homemade grass pad, right. And generally speaking, I'm only about six inches off the ground. He immediately said, "Well, get up higher." So I was about a foot and a half now, which is. To me high off the ground yeah because when i was practicing by myself the minute i got into any type of problem i would just slam that collective down and you'd hit the ground and that
0: would be it because you're only six inches up. that's right and it's mm-hmm. grass okay you're on sod right so you're in your, the backyard of your house uh
1: yeah i yeah. I, I, I i grew a 100 foot diameter pad okay of grass so um So, when this uncommanded event took place, I just immediately dropped collecting. (laughs) And we slammed to the ground. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know I mean? And I go, well, that's what I did. I mean, uh, you know, when it kind of got away from me a little bit, I, I just put it on the ground. Yeah. Well, don't do that. He says, <laughs> He says, I'm here with you. Don't ever do that again. All right. Yeah. I said, okay, fine. So we continued with the instruction for about an hour. And sure enough, at the end of it, he goes, well, you got hovering down. And trust me, you don't need to slam it to the ground just because it gets away from me because there was a wind issue mm-hmm. there he goes just let it drift a little and then command it back and so after that hour uh he was happy with my ability to hover i continued with him for another uh four days because they they go through a whole process of kind of training yeah
0: so where was this factory
1: oh this was in tempe arizona oh wow okay and, and so uh and by the way this was 40 years ago mm-hmm. right <laughs> well yeah yeah about 40 years ago so um after that he uh, trained me on things that i wasn't used to doing like climbing out doing pattern work uh, doing an auto rotation and actually we started off with what they call quick stops Mm -hmm. and and then i came back here to san diego moved the helicopter from my backyard to this airport here at ramona airport and i started to practice these other items and uh and so then after about 20 hours of practicing these other items i went back and then he taught me how to do what we call auto rotations all the way to the ground Mm -hmm. most people think that a helicopter will drop like a rock if the engine quits and that's not true at all what happens is is it's the rotor blades that keep you in the air not the engine Ah. okay the engine yes is supplying power to the rotor blades but it's the rotor blades that are keeping you in the air Mm -hmm. so when the engine quits you could manipulate the controls in such a manner that you can keep those rotor blades turning as you're uh, more or less auto rotating to the ground meaning there's no power to the blades and then when you get closer to the ground you can flare it and just land
0: so this is amazing because i would imagine that 99.9 percent of helicopter pilots got their training in the military right
1: Oh, that's probably true,
0: yes. Yeah, and so you are definitely an exception to the rule, a a civilian learning on his own in his backyard. (laughs) Well, as a matter of fact, like I said, when I walked in there and said,
1: yeah, I can hover, they looked at me like, what do you mean you can hover? I was only the fifth person to get their license out of 2,500 kids sold not only that i was the youngest because at this time i was 24 and a half when i went in there right and and they looked at me they go yeah when you came in here and said you could hover we said that's that's a bunch of bull there's no way you could hover (laughs) so they were really surprised that i followed the instructions and i taught myself how to how to hover at home and um so at the time I used to watch the videos on all the pioneers, Sikorsky and Piosaki and mm-hmm. Hiller. And, you know, there was five of them out there. And and that's how they learned how to fly because there was no instructors. There's nobody to teach you how to fly. Right. So all these pioneers, you see the pictures. It's tied down. I tied mine down mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and kind of lifted it up and, and got... You know jumping around in between the the tether, yeah, and uh, as time goes on, you remove the tethers and you got a little smoother it took me twenty hours before I felt comfortable as a matter of fact, the day I felt comfortable, I was just trying to move the helicopter along the ground, dragging it on the skids
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, but keeping it it was touching the ground the whole time and as each week went by, I was probably pulling a little more power mm-hmm. and, and it, it was getting easier to, right. s- to kind of drag it along the ground because it was getting lighter. And I had a bunch of friends watching me one day and all of a sudden they were all waving their arms frantically and i'm thinking "Oh no something's coming off the helicopter so i i i I shut it down and they come running over me and they say you were this high off the ground the whole time and i go you're kidding me so see i didn't even know i was in the air they go yes you were this high off the ground the whole time so that's when i found out i was actually hovering uh and then i continued for about another 10 hours of doing that and um just playing around with it. And then that's when I decided, well, it's probably time I go to the factory and get the factory training.
0: That is awesome. <laughs> so sure. so this is like you're in your early 20s. You had this fascination with helicopters. Yes. You said, I'm going to get my own helicopter. You right. built it. You taught yourself in the backyard to hover. You went to the factory, got the formal training. Mm-hmm. And and then what, what did you do after you were a fully trained pilot?
1: Well, so on this particular helicopter, I continue to fly it. Uh, I ended up uh, about 90 hours in it before I went to get my actual FAA test Mm -hmm. uh, to become a pilot. Ah. And and that was a little unusual event, too, because the FAA uh, came out and they they looked at the helicopter and it was their attitude was, well, I'm not getting in that. (laughs) (laughs) Even though there was two seats in it. Yeah. So he wrote down a set of commands that he wanted me to do. And, and these were commands like pick up, go forward 10 feet, go to the left 10 feet, go to the right 10 feet, turn around 180, set down, lift up again. So it was just a set of commands. There's like 20, 25 commands on the sheet. And he says, I want you to go follow these as I have written them. And if you deviate from any of them, we're going to assume it was uncommanded. Therefore, you lost control. Hmm. And I said, OK, fine. Well, by then... I was so bored with these simple twenty-five commands. I mean, in my backyard. Uh, I, I. By the way, my backyard was seventeen acres, so okay. I was out in the boonies. <laughs> All right, but but in my backyard. I had grown this 100 by 100 foot grass pad, right. just riddled with, with uh, gophers. <laughs> so every day I'd go out there, there'd be mounds everywhere. Mm. And I'd get in the helicopter, fire it up. And just as practice, I'd go out there and I'd use the skid of the helicopter. And I would slide over each one of the mounds with the skid ah, and tamp them down. Nice. And then I'd fly the next one. <laughs> Sometimes I do with the left skid. Sometimes I do with the right skid. You know, so you're like a groundskeeper at the same right. time, <laughs> and I'm just doing it while I'm flying the helicopter. So yeah. I was very comfortable with with the with the helicopter and flying at yeah. that time, especially hovering. So when he's given me these basic commands to do, I remember I was out there and I was doing these commands, and we were at a at an airport in Tempe, uh, Arizona, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, you're listening to the tower. There's traffic going by this area that I was hovering. So you get distracted. Yeah, And at one point, I think the tower told me, uh, I need you to move over, we've got a taxiing aircraft. So I kind of got out of the way. Mm-hmm. And then I froze, because I'm looking at my my instructions and right. I'm going, am I on number 13 or am I on number 14? Right. I didn't know where I was at. Mm. And so I'm sitting there and I'm going, and I didn't dare move from what I was doing because then he considers it uncommanded. Right. So I called the tower, ground frequency. Yeah. I said, by the way, there's an FAA examiner on frequency. I'd like to know what number am I on? Yeah. Yeah. and you're on number 14 right yeah so then i continued the process smart of you to do and, that and um he was a little upset the fact that you know what are you doing up there how could you forget where you're at i go well the tower told me to move over yeah you heard that and, yeah yeah and i just forgot where i was yeah <laughs> so uh either way i passed and and then i flew the aircraft for about another 60 hours and i actually um put it on a trailer and took it to Oshkosh because all the people that do home-built aircraft mm-hmm. go to Oshkosh. That's like Wisconsin, right? Yes. Okay. And it's the big EAA Oshkosh fly-in. I mean, millions of, of people go to that show. Okay. And, thousands and thousands of takeoffs of all these people with their home built aircraft matter of fact during that week it's the busiest airport in the world wow there's that many home builders and there's that many people that travel to oshkosh so that was kind of like the ultimate for a home builder fly your aircraft at oshkosh and i went there and i mm-hmm. flew it in
0: the show nice uh so that's it. and and then i just moved on from there mm-hmm so how, how did you get to the point where you suddenly now have a museum? I mean, I understand you're an enthusiast, you're flying, and then this just kept building over the years, right? Yeah, well, uh,
1: along those lines, I ended up buying a Robinson helicopter, an R-22, mm-hmm. with uh, two other friends of mine. And I continued to fly that aircraft to kind of quench that thirst for, yeah. for flight. But then, after a while, it... it it's just basic helicopter flying i wanted more of a challenge right and that's when i bought the h21 now that's a tandem rotor helicopter they call it the flying banana okay uh it's not just your average everyday helicopter matter of fact ours was the only one that flew in the world Mm -hmm. we spent 18 months working on it to get it into flight worthy condition and we started flying this helicopter along with uh several friends of mine who helped us work and get this thing airworthy again and we started going to air shows right and we realized that you know somehow we have to become a non-profit so we decided we're going to become a museum and our one and only aircraft in the museum is this h-21 okay it itself was a museum piece right only one flying in the world so that's how we started off and before you know it we bought another helicopter and another helicopter and now there's 35 helicopters in the museum wow So it just kind of started off as a hobby. And now, like, like I tell people, it's turned into an obligation. I feel the obligation <laughs> of the keeper of the history. right? And I have to preserve this and I have to go find them and bring them in and restore them and keep them in the, in, in the uh,
0: museum. So, right. I mean, you're, you're capturing the history of aviation here. Right. You know, and you've, you've shown us all the the multiple generations of tandem aircraft that you have here. And yeah. we saw some of those early experimental um, you know, uh, you call them birds. I like that. Yes. That's, yes. We, we tend, I, I refer to helicopters as birds. Yes. Yeah, so I'm learning a, a lot the lingo. Of people do. <laughs> yeah. So what's your, what's your favorite, um, museum piece that you have here? But, you know, people ask me that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and,
1: you know, it's like asking you with all your amongst your children, who's your favorite kid? Right. And, you know, no parent can ever say right. what it is. So I guess it just all depends. I mean, everything that's been brought in the museum has been vetted for a specific reason.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And our namesake, classic rotors, is to mm-hmm. have one of every different type of rotor system okay or or represent one of each of the different pioneers of helicopters mm-hmm. so that's what we do and so each one is sought after so at that moment in time it's my favorite okay we're gonna right. go find it we're gonna yeah. get it mm-hmm. we're gonna bring it in the museum mm-hmm. then what's the next newborn right <laughs> you know? right. and and what do we go for next and it's really all about c- collecting the history
0: mm-hmm. uh, the best we can do it and so so have you ever had like a a person that came in saw the tour and there was one aircraft they were just blown away or maybe there was one aircraft that they made a special long distance trip to come and see yeah this happens quite often Mm -hmm. uh the 21 the h-21 which was
1: flew flown in vietnam so during the vietnam war i mean helicopters were the new thing and Vietnam was always referred to as the helicopter war.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and, and so, but the H-21s were there before the Hueys. Everybody knows what the Hueys are. But what came first was the H-21s. Their heyday was 61 through 63. Mm-hmm. And that was when we were there as the, uh, as the U.S. as a role to help support uh, the South Vietnamese. And so um, a lot of people that were in that war know the Mm H-21. It was kind of like a hate-love situation because the H-21 would sit there and take you into a war zone so mm-hmm. you weren't very happy about it. It would <laughs> drop you off. But boy, you couldn't wait to hear the sound of that helicopter coming back. And you're hearing that th- 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 in the air, mm-hmm. knowing that oh, this thing's taken me out of this place. Right. And so there was the hate love relationship between any helicopter during the Vietnam War. So a lot of people were familiar with the H-21, a lot of people, and we're the only ones with a flying one left in the world. Wow. So a lot of people come here to see the H-21.
0: it it truly is the flagship of our museum right on so well you get like 35 different types of aircraft yes and that one the only one in the world that's still operational correct that's that's special a matter of fact several of
1: the aircraft in there are are either one of a kind Mm because they only built one okay uh Hence our name, Classic Rotors. And then we have the the little subtitle that says the rare and vintage rotorcraft museum. Right. And notice we use the word rotorcraft, not helicopter, because there's a lot of rotorcraft that aren't necessarily
0: helicopters. I mean, all helicopters are rotorcraft, but not all rotorcraft are helicopters. So what's an example of one that's not a helicopter?
1: Well, the first closest uh, would be the gyrocopter. Mm-hmm. where it's pushed through the air by a propeller or pulled through the air by a propeller and but then it has rotor blades that just freewheel and spin mm. just from the fact that you're going through the air I see then we have a, a helicopter a rotorcraft that looks like a blimp and when you see how it operates you'll realize yep that's a rotorcraft right so you just picture a blimp rotating uh you have to see it okay and, and maybe in this in this podcast you'll be able to see some video of it okay um and 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 then there's uh there's several uh rotor craft like we have this one road craft that i think we took some pictures of it was called the helipod mm. and the helipod doesn't have a tail rotor on it. it has coaxial rotors and it has what we call a ducted fan and and it's thrust vectored so People wouldn't really look at it as a helicopter because it's a ducted, thrusted, vectored, thrusted fan. Right. So, again, very helicopter-ish, but really in the rotorcraft family.
0: Yeah. I mean, as a layman, I I have no helicopters. I've seen the tandems, you know, in in the movies and definitely Vietnam. But I was just blown away by all of these it was almost like futuristic aircraft that were created in the 50s and 60s things almost like look like you see on the Jetsons or you know oh, yes. like something yes. that was during that space race era, you know, that style, that look. Yes. Um, yes. So there's some special aircraft here that I enjoy. We, we have one of the aircraft that, that I don't think we talked about, but
1: this was a helicopter uh, for down Vietnam pilots. So you have an F-86 pilot, and he goes down behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. it's very difficult to go rescue him because you risk the lives of an entire helicopter crew. Yes. You know, maybe five to 10 guys flying out there hovering above a tree line because that's normally what you had out there in the jungle lowering down a penetrator to lift them out through a cable and bring them out you're just a sitting duck during that process right so the pentagon came up with the idea well, we're just gonna send this helicopter in a little pod and we'll throw it out of an airplane it'll parachute down he'll put it together hop in it and fly himself out oh wow Thus. More or less executing his own SAR mission, right? He's going to rescue himself. This was great. You know, we'll just throw these things out, he'll hop in it and fly home. Well, then they started getting the reports back to the Pentagon. Hey, by the way, you know the Rescue Yourself program? Yeah, well, these pilots can't fly helicopters. We've got a problem. (laughs) What do you mean they're jet pilots? (laughs) Yeah, but they can't fly helicopters. They're going to kill themselves trying to save themselves. So that program <laughs> ended. Well, it
0: probably take them two and a half years to assemble their <laughs> helicopter, right? Like <laughs> you. That's true. But luckily in this case, you can put it together in about 20 minutes. Wow. So do, do you have some of those here as well? We do have one example of that here. That is awesome. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You brought up the story about, um, you know, the sound of the H-21, right? Uh, and it makes me think of the opening scene to the television show MASH, you know, mm-hmm. when the helicopters would come in. Well, what type of aircraft was that? So that was a Bell forty seven. Mm-hmm.
1: And matter of fact, whenever I talk to people about helicopters and they say, What was that helicopter? You know, I go, You mean the one in MASH? And yeah. they go, Yeah, that one. Yeah. And then I tell them that was a Bell 47. You get the same thing with a Hughes five hundred. People go, well, What's a Hughes five hundred? I say, Oh, well, that's the Magnum helicopter. Ah. So anyone that remembers the show Magnum PI, yeah,
0: and of course it's running again now.
2: Yeah,
1: and that's what they, you know, it's an eggshell looking uh, Hughes 500
0: so the, the new Magnum has a helicopter too same,
1: same exact one. Oh, right on even painted the same I think really yes they what? they brought it back to life
0: when was that Tom Selleck show on it was like in the mid 80s that was in the 80s I guess
1: somewhere yeah. around there And but I refer to that as a Magnum helicopter I the Bell 47 is the MASH helicopter <laughs> and then anytime I want to talk about an S61 mm-hmm. or an H3 like what is that that's the presidential helicopter ah. so so I can, I can relate these helicopters to what most people
0: you know recognize them as to be right <laughs> yeah like the one yeah well the president there on the what is it the east lawn or something yeah, like yeah. that where they get on the yeah that's actually an h3 or an s61 right on so <laughs> okay Wow. So now, you know, you're a museum, so you must have a lot of people coming through here visiting. Um, what kind of what kind of people are typically coming into your museum?
1: Well, normally, since we're up here in Ramon, it's not like you just drive off the street and, and say, hey, look, there's a helicopter museum.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what, what happens is, is most the people that come to our location, it, it's the destination. Uh, we get a lot from uh england a lot from uh uh, european travelers Mm. Uh, they they see it as a destination because there's only like four helicopter museums in the entire world and uh, there's two here in the u.s one on the west coast yes one on the east coast called the american helicopter museum Mm -hmm. and then over in uh, germany you have You have the Das Habenschreiber, which by the way stands for the Helicopter Museum. And then in England, you have the Helicopter Museum. (laughs) Now, the English one, Mm -hmm. the Helicopter Museum, they were up and running long before Das Habenschreiber. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And when I looked, at it, I go, "What does that mean?" And they says, "Oh, that means the helicopter museum." So I don't know if the Germans were getting back at the uh, at the English there on that one or not. But um, so that's it. There's only four uh, helicopter or rotorcraft dedicated mm-hmm. only museums in the world.
0: Well, I'd imagine a lot of the enthusiasts from Oshkosh have probably made their way here. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. We,
1: we get visitors. So normally you're aviation oriented, and you're aware of. helicopter museum Mm -hmm. and
0: it's it's over here in you know San Diego County. But this is just to me is like a treasure because there, it's something like the there's a a guest i interviewed her name is jessica johnson and she has a hope uh, website about hidden san diego mm-hmm. about all these really special places around san diego county this should be in her book really i mean this <laughs> when i got here i was like oh my god a helicopter museum and i got into your hangar and i was just blown away by the amount of aircraft that are here i mean if you're an aviation enthusiast, if you're just a regular person, just wants to learn about history, I mean, you could walk down memory lane here going back 30, 40, 50 years.
2: Yes,
1: most definitely. We're, uh, our collection is unique. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like all the collections in the other museum and and I can name things that these other museums have that we don't have, but then we have several items that that they would like to have. Matter of fact, I I endearingly refer to them as my nemesis because we're all going after the same assets, the same Uh. piece of history. So when something like that comes available. Boy, we try to act quickly to go get it before our competitors are aware of it.
0: Well, because the, the American government makes it available, some of these military aircraft, right? Yes. Some of the military
1: aircraft, we can get through what they call the DRMO, uh, DRMO mm-hmm. program, and we can get those aircraft to us. Uh, but the other ones are normally someone calling us up and saying um hey we've got this helicopter it's sitting in our barn for the last you know 50 years Uh, would you want it (laughs) Mm. and i'd say well what is it can you send me a picture right and a lot of times that picture puts me in a mode that we got to leave today
2: oh wow we have to
1: go get this Mm -hmm. because i recognize it as a -a one-of-a-kind piece of history other times it's like "Ah, we wouldn't be interested in that
0: so a little bit of treasure hunting to this oh they're definitely you know definitely. so when the federal government makes some of their assets available i mean you would get first dibs before the guys in germany right oh absolutely in yeah. fact just about anything that's going to be on u.s
1: government assets we, we we get first dibs but there's several aviation oriented museums that are happy to take anything at all that's aviation right so they, you know they could be have all airplanes and they'll go after some helicopters that we want right uh, generally speaking if there's only one available they're probably going to allocate it to us because that's what we are is a helicopter museum mm-hmm. but if there's several of them they'll send you know they'll, they'll give us our choice and they'll send some of the other ones to to what i'd call non-helicopter type museums
0: right this is unbelievable. It, the, you know, I was talking to Pete when we were coming here before, and I said, you know, the, my podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so when I came here with Pete, to me, this seems like this is a reflection of your life and your pursuit of your own happiness, and isn't it? I mean, it definitely is. Yeah.
1: like I said, there there was a defined change in how I looked at it in the beginning and and what it is now. You, you get, you become instilled with this, like I said, it, it becomes an obligation almost. Well, it's a
0: heavy lift,
1: you know, right, because, yeah, it was fun collecting in the beginning, but now... You have to maintain the collection. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of costs involved with the building and such oh, yeah. in order to do that. And just the land lease here at the airport. So now you get you start getting this financial burden on you. Yeah. And and yet you, you can't stop.
0: No, you can't. Okay. People because are depending on the, you. <laughs>
1: well, yeah. And your life's work, because this is what this has been to me now, is yes. my life's work, uh, that I just can't let it fail. So it's a constant financial issue with Coming out with the money to cover all the expenses on mm-hmm. a monthly basis,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and anytime we want to go get uh, another helicopter, there's cost involved in getting oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. So we sometimes we get sponsors that say. Hey, I was in Vietnam, and I'd love for you to get that Huey. I'll sponsor the trip for you to go get that. So we get the the expenses paid because we go and get it. We use our own trucks, our own trailers mm-hmm. to go pick that thing up and bring it here to the museum. Right. And then our own people do the restoration. And then there's cost of materials and and stuff like that to get the proper parts so if we can get a benefactor that will sponsor that, that that's how we normally go about it mm-hmm. a lot of times we'll pick things up and then they just sit in one of our storage hangars, mm-hmm. waiting to find a, a benefactor or a sponsor to get that aircraft restored to flight again right but then again the daily you know the monthly bills to pay for the facility
0: oh yeah that's our biggest problem here i'm sure it is i mean because like you know it started off as a as a you know how do you say a passion project right or a hobby a hobby and and now it's become this entity and uh, but people will flock here for it i i just think i bet you there's a lot of people that have no idea that you even exist probably not i mean most of the people that know we're here they're devout
1: aviation enthusiasts right they, they they know we're here they seek us out they they through their own uh grapevine of people talking mm-hmm. uh, but i'd say the average public like you can go down to our de babel park here in san diego mm-hmm. and you'll walk by you know eight or nine museums yeah uh, there's a train museum down there you know, hey, yeah let's go see the train museum yeah well, that doesn't happen up here No. Uh, You know, we would love to have a spot in Babel Park and maybe that will happen one of these days. Because in Babel Park you have the aerospace museum, you have the, Mm -hmm. um, they have a car museum and that would be a perfect spot for us to have the rotorcraft museum down there. And then you would have more traffic and more exposure
0: to just the general public that doesn't even know we exist so let's just say that um you know let's just say jeff bezos from amazon decided to be a benefactor and wrote you a blank check what would be the next big thing you'd love to do with this uh with this project
1: that'd be interesting if if we had that type of funding I think I would make a play to figure out how we could get down to the Babel Park area, Mm -hmm. because that's Museum Row here in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and if you had the money and you went to them and said, look, I'll build right here in this empty. Because there's a lot of undeveloped areas Mm -hmm. uh, out there. Uh, That's what I would do. That'd be the ideal thing. Short of that, I'd come here and build another hangar yeah I mean that's definitely what we need uh, because we're we're as stuffed as you can be oh my goodness yeah
0: it's (laughs) jam-packed
1: matter of fact all most of the aviation enthusiasts that come visit the museum they're they're camera fanatics too Mm -hmm. they want to take a picture and they're always on me I can't get any perspective (laughs) I got rotor blades going every which direction and I can't get a picture of just that aircraft without pieces of the other aircraft Mm -hmm. you know fouling up the picture so if we could do something like like that we need to spread out I can take exactly what I have right now double the size of the building probably make the photographers happy right so that's the first thing I would love to do and then of course a lot of what we maybe turn down or don't accept or don't try to get because mm-hmm. i have something very similar to it already in the museum and i'm trying to represent all the different type of rotorcraft mm-hmm. and what's unique about them rather than having duplication but there's a need for duplication because there's something unique about that machine oh yeah even though it looks exactly like this other machine maybe it's history mm. you know it's the first one to fly the president ah you know and uh so we would love to do that but it's really about space and the facility and the cost of that space and facility
0: is there a certain bird you'd love to have that you don't have here oh boy there's there, there there's tons yeah. i mean
1: I, I, I couldn't even name them there's so <laughs> many yeah um uh, as i told you right now I'm, I'm taking a lot of those treasures which we can never own because there's only one built right and it's already in the smithsonian and they're never going to give it to me yeah right so but there's at least 20 of them that i'd love but to you, have
0: but you have like 35 different aircraft here i mean it's it's a mind-blowing experience you we were even joking earlier you have uh these the videos in front of a lot of these aircraft oh yeah and you could spend an hour and a half just consuming the videos oh yeah
1: there's over 30 uh videos in there in front of the aircraft that they're representing and each video is about three minutes long so if you just came by and walked through our museum and watched every video Uh, You'd be here for an hour and a half. And so you can see them in flight. Yes. And and a lot of times it's that very machine that you're looking at in that flight. That's so awesome.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way to connect with you?
1: Well, on on our website, uh, we're Mm -hmm. rotors.org. I I say that with a little apprehension because... None of us here are webmasters. Our website, anyone to look at it would say, your website needs updating. But what we do tend to update is our what we call hangar happenings. Mm -hmm. And that's updated on a monthly basis. We have a guy that writes very well, and and he creates everything that we've done that month, and he publishes on our website every month. So that's called hangar happenings. Uh, Some of our aircraft are, are on that website. Some aren't. They should be. But we just don't have that type of expertise to really dive in and make the website what we want but through our website you can contact us at uh comms c-o-m-m-s comms at rotors.org right uh you can get a hold of me directly Mm -hmm. mark at rotors.org okay and um but uh or just come down and and visit us
0: right on I just think this is a treasure. This is a something in San Diego County I had no idea about. When Pete brought me here, it was a big surprise, you know. We had a fun time uh, kind of building the anticipation here. But I, I loved it. You know, Mark, thanks for having us here um, at your amazing museum. Uh, it was a wonderful trip, and I wish you nothing but the success in the future. Well, I appreciate that very much. And anybody that wants to come by is welcome here. We're, we're open on
1: Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Okay. And uh, from about uh,
0: four to uh, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., all right. On those three days. All right, well, thank you very much. You bet. Hey, everybody, let's uh, go downstairs and let's check out the Classic Rotor's Museum.
1: Aircraft right here. It doesn't look familiar. It's just like all the other quad rotor drones that you see the kids playing with. Difference here is this one's 50 feet by 50 feet. And it has a fire attack uh, water tank on it. So this will be used to fight fires. The difference between this and the way they fight fires today with helicopters is you have a manned helicopter. You have a mandate that says you're only going to fight the fire during the day for obvious safety reasons so the other pilots can see what's up there and they don't run into each other. But with a drone, an autonomous vehicle, this thing will fly around on its own. It will identify through infrared light sources to find out where the fire is. It will fly to those points, it will drop the amount of water that it feels it needs to drop for that size of infrared signature. Then it will fly to the next signature and drop water there. Um, when it's exhausted its water, it will then fly to a predetermined fill point, and it will uh, basically snorkel up another uh, uh, gallons of water, and it would continue the fight. Uh, also, if you look at drones in the form of a swarm, where you have ten of these drones following each other, fighting a fire line. And, and a fire line, if you ever see a fire on a ridge line, I mean, it's not straight at all. And the atmospheric conditions at different points along that fire line is all different. So knowing when to drop the water, knowing what the wind direction is and how strong the wind is, is very important. And that's what makes a firefighter a, a, and a fire attack fighter in an airplane, that's his expertise. He's dropping water at a spot that knows that then the wind will blow it where he wants it to be. So you have the same thing here, but we can simulate that digitally. In order for this drone to fly through the air and stay on a course, it knows what the wind direction is and it knows what the power of that wind is. So as these things are all flying along following a a, a fire front, each one of them will offset appropriately at the time that it drops the water. So its drop will then go into the, into the fire front. So all that type of technology is already out there today. All we're doing is just combining it in a larger uh, vehicle. This particular one was built with just 380 gallon tank on it. The so-called bigger drone which really isn't physically larger, but it will be more powerful, it'll be able to lift a thousand gallon tank, which is about 8,000 pounds. And that's kind of the sweet spot that we're trying to go for in fighting fires, is you've got 10 drones out there, each with a thousand gallons on board, and they can drop 10,000 gallons on a fire front. And we feel that this would fight the fire more effectively. And of course, it's 24 seven. It's not going to uh, take a break because the sun goes down. It's gonna keep on going throughout the night. So right off the bat, it would be an augment to the existing firefighting strategy. Maybe you have the human pilots up there fighting the fire. Then they deploy these at night and let them fly all around. They all know where they are at. They're not gonna run into each other and they'll continue the fight. Cause right now they'll take two or three steps forward during the day and then at night lose those two or three steps while the fire continues to fester at night. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, we're just bringing the expertise of rotorcraft because we're rotorcraft people here at the museum. and uh, But that's our contribution to this project is to get the rotor system running smooth and capable of lifting that load of water in this particular machine. So now this aircraft here is referred to as the helipod. And This particular aircraft has two chainsaw motors. These are chainsaw engines up here. And it it had a big ducted fan that would amount to here and that would articulate all around in order to to put the direction of flight that you want to be in. Um, This was back in 1962. Uh, and, And it hit a bunch of people in the Hollywood area. Uh, in this picture down here, Doris Day, she was one of the the big contributors uh, or investors in this project. And then there was about 20 or 30 others uh, that invested in this. Now the whole idea, this was gonna revolutionize transportation, especially say in the LA area. Uh, You wouldn't have traffic jams anymore because you're just gonna wheel this out of your garage and hop in it and fly to work or you're gonna go to the beach with it or what have you. Now, it was a single-seater aircraft, but they show it rescuing people with a ladder trailing below it and you're pulling somebody out of the water. Um, The the problem with this thing back in the day, the investors thought, well, we have to get a bunch of patents. So they ran around, they got 40 patents from 40 different countries. and, and, and they would, in, in their meetings with their investors, they would tell them, well, we got the patent in China, we got the patent in, in Japan. We, and as if that was going to create success. Well, as they're spending all this money getting patents, they spend more money on, on lawyers and getting this type of uh, work done than they did on actually building the machine. So they never really quite finished it. They got it to this stage and then ran out of money. And then the project ended. Um, my thoughts are, if they would have put the money into the project, that probably they would have got this thing to fly. Um, now, how practical would it have been that you're going to fly all around L.A. And, and they have I have pictures where it looks like a woman went out shopping and she's got her hands full of bags of shop and she's first of all she couldn't even fit them in here. And then to think that you're just gonna get it and fly home, it just doesn't work out that way. Like I said, my early beginnings that I'm gonna build my helicopter in my backyard, teach myself how to fly it, and then fly to and from work, yeah, that didn't quite work out. It's just not that simple. So right now I'm sitting on uh, what most people refer to as, as a Huey. These were very popular during the Vietnam War. They built more of these helicopters than any other helicopter built today. They built some 12,000 of them during the, during the time of Vietnam. So either you were going into battle or they're pulling you out of battle, this is the machine that you were in. Uh, this particular one was one of the later models. It's a, a twin engine. They called it a UH-1N and um, Primarily the Navy uh, took, took delivery of these things and they were used by the Navy. But um, during the Vietnam War uh, they were flying all kinds of piston powered helicopters during that time. And this was the first time that they really started utilizing turbine powered helicopters. And, and this thing just revolutionized. As a matter of fact, they called the Vietnam War the helicopter war because everything was all about how do we get into this dense jungle and mountain ranges? And it was just a very different type of war. You just didn't have a front line and you're marching through. So in Vietnam, they, they came up with the, the Huey helicopter and they said, this is what we're gonna use to, to fight this war. And they would take troops in and, and they would fight a particular area and then they would take them out at the end of the day. So the the Huey was very instrumental in doing that. Now, this particular helicopter has what we call, it's a two-bladed rotor system. So this would be uh, some of the first development of this type of helicopter. Then they came out with this helicopter over here. So if people aren't aware of this one, this is called a Robinson R-22. Again, it goes back to this two-bladed system And this would be one of the, a version of a Huey in modern day form. Uh, It was kind of built that the average person could buy one of these, own them, learn to fly it, take lessons in it, and then park it in their backyard if they wanted to. That was always my story in the beginning. I wanted to build a helicopter and fly to and from my home for work. But this right here, takes care of that. You don't have to build it, you just buy it. So, two different versions. This was the first uh, type of this uh, two-bladed system, and then this is the modern day version of a two-bladed system. Uh, We're one of the few museums, as a matter of fact, we're the only museum that has four different versions out of the five generations of tandem rotor helicopters. This particular one right here was the first. This was built in 1948, and it was the first time that they built a helicopter with dual rotors, one in the front, one in the back. Hence, we refer to it as a tandem rotor helicopter. As you can see, this open framework, and it's, it's built with tubes, and originally they would cover this with fabric, but, A lot of the early development of this machine was flown just as you see it here. I have several videos of this flying just as you see it. But with it like this, I call it our invisible helicopter. You can look at all the control systems. If you come down here, you can see that the engine is just sitting out there in the open. And all the cables and everything. Now you see a lot of this covering on it. That's because we're doing some painting on it, finishing up the restoration of this aircraft. When we're done, this will be a flyable helicopter. Let's go up to the front here real quick. By the way, I don't know if you can see this, but this is how we first uh, retrieved it out of the scrapyard that it was sitting in. So So that's what we started with, and this is what we have now. Even in the cockpit, they had tandem seating where you had the pilot in the front and a co-pilot in the back. Um, But this aircraft, we've spent now over eight years on it to get it to the condition you see it in now. And it will be the only one in the world flying. Now, we look at the second generation. This right here is the second generation of the tandem rotors. This particular one was used by the Navy and it was primarily used when they would launch aircraft off of an aircraft carrier. This would literally launch first. They called it a sea guard. It would just sit out there and hover and wait to see if an aircraft had a problem on takeoff to where it ended up in the water or if an aircraft had a problem on landing and it ended up in the water. This aircraft would then rescue you. So they referred to this as a HUP, H-U-P, which stood for Helicopter Utility Piasaki. This one over here, that first generation, that was the H-R-P, which was uh, Helicopter Rescue Piasaki. Piasaki was the second pioneer of helicopters, and he built tandems. Now, the third generation is this one right here. This is called an H-21, and the H-21 was also, by the way, all these helicopters, especially the first one we talked about, they refer to it as the flying banana because it's shaped like a banana. Uh, This one also had the phrase flying banana. This one though right here was a real workhorse. I mean, it was in Vietnam during, uh, in 1963, And it was primarily used to transport troops to and out of some battle, some area that they were trying to uh, take over. And this helicopter is primarily used for that. They built about 600 of them and uh, its heyday was definitely Vietnam. Shortly after that, then they started flying the Hueys. This is a piston powered aircraft. So it was pretty old school when it came to helicopters once they started flying the turbine Hueys. Now after this, we come over to this aircraft right here. This right here is a CH-46. This particular one was a rescue aircraft. It was used uh, at Cherry Point in uh, uh, South Carolina. And when this was donated to us from the government, since we're a helicopter museum, the government will give us assets that they no longer use. In this case, they decommissioned this aircraft and they said, hey, classic rotors, do you want this aircraft? And we said, sure. So we went down there and got this aircraft uh, and flew it from South Carolina back to San Diego. It was about 2,500 mile uh, flight. We had to take 10 fuel stops. And people ask me, what type of problems did you have on this flight? We had absolutely no mechanical problems whatsoever. Our biggest problem was the credit card. So when we first stopped at our our first fuel station, we fueled up, it was about 1,500 gallons worth of fuel, Um, actually $1,500 worth of fuel. The next day when we tried to use the card again, and this was a debit card, by the way, Uh, The car didn't work. We called, we said, how come our car doesn't work? And they said, oh, there's been fraud committed on your card." And I says, what's that? Well, someone put $1,500 worth of gasoline in in a vehicle. And I said, well, that's us. And they go, well, what are you driving? I said, we're driving a helicopter. So at that point, she goes, oh, well, we're gonna have to correct this. So they they fixed this. Now this is all going down on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday was when this was happening. We get to the next stop, and all of a sudden, the car is not working again. And what we found out was for daily gas purchases, we had $2,500 limit. So I said, let's increase that, make it $10,000. And uh, I remember she said, well, I, Mary Lou, here on a Saturday in Broken Bow, Nebraska, I can only authorize 7500 I said, great, give us 7500 We We gotta get home. So after that, we had no other problems. When we came back, I talked to a friend of mine who also runs very large tandem rotor helicopters and I explaining to him about our biggest problem was the credit card and fuel. And he goes, well, Mark, I don't have any sympathy for your fueling problems. And I said, why is that? And he says, well, our helicopter takes 2,000 gallons of fuel and we're flying through the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And when I need fuel, I land out in the middle of nowhere and a bunch of guys come running out with guns and a bunch of barrels worth of fuel and they fuel me in the middle of the the jungle. And guess what, Mark? They don't take credit cards. I have to carry suitcases of cash and denominations of only $20 bills. So literally, I have suitcases of cash to pay for my fuel needs when we're transiting our aircraft through, through some of the countries we fly in. So therefore, he had no sympathy for my fueling problems. So this particular helicopter right here, it's referred to as the Model 15 Trifibian. The, uh, the pioneer of this helicopter was a man by the name of uh, uh, Monty. So this was referred to as the Monty Copter. What makes it uniquely different from all other rotorcraft that I've ever seen, I've never seen one that's referred to as a Trifibian. So land, air, or sea. And you know it's a Trifibian because of course it has an anchor. Anything that's gonna land on the water here in the US, you better have an anchor on board. Um, So this particular aircraft, it had a turbine engine, but the turbine engine was not used to turn something. What they did is they blew all the exhaust of that turbine engine out through the rotor blades. And you can see one of the rotor blades are up there. And at the tip of that blade is is a nozzle. And so the air would come out of that nozzle and make the rotor blade turn. The reason why they did that, that was the easiest way for them to accomplish the Trifibian aspects. Because what they would do is that would handle the flight, but then they would, with a big diverter valve, rather than blowing that air out through the tip, they would blow it out right through the tail. That gave them the propulsion when they were on the water. So it kind of created a little rooster tail. Looked like a, you know, those hydrofoil boats blowing air out. And, uh, and then of course the body is built in such a way that, that it floats. So in one of their prov- promotional videos, They show this thing um, uh, going down a boat ramp, a boat uh, launching ramp, goes right into the water. You see the motor out into the middle of the lake. And then they slide this cabin back and they come out and they sit right on this uh, stub wing here with their fishing poles and they start fishing. Then it shows like later on in the day, uh, they put their, Uh, camping gear in back, and they have a sleeping bag, and I guess they're going to go to sleep for the evening. Next day, they show it lifting off of the water, taking off and flying off somewhere. So it's just like the the Jetsons, you know, (laughs) that that you can do all those items with just this one aircraft. This aircraft right here was called the QH-50, and that stands for normally the, the Q means it's some type of submarine uh, hunting type of machine. And that's what this thing was. It's an actual drone. There's no pilot on it. What you see was the entire aircraft. And also it's coaxial rotor. So you have one rotor turning clockwise and the other one turning counterclockwise. Therefore, there's no terror because there's no torque on this aircraft. Well, what's interesting about this aircraft is we're talking back in the 1960s that this aircraft was produced. So nowadays you hear the military always talking about drones. Drones this, drones that. Yet here we are in the 60s. Not only was this a drone, it's a drone helicopter, not like the fixed wing uh, machines that they're pretty much running a lot of today. But here was a helicopter drone and Slung underneath was two Mark 44 torpedoes. So this is an armed torpedo carrying drone hunting a submarine. It had its own sonar detection device here that would drop down into the water and it would listen for a submarine. Now, the thing about this is it could be right on top of the submarine the submarine doesn't know it's there because it's really not making any contact with the water. So all the submarine knows is everything's fine. And then before you know it, there's a torpedo in the water coming from this. Now they wouldn't let this thing just launch its own torpedo. All this information and data was being sent back to a ship that's probably over the horizon. So even if the submarine was looking, they didn't see any ships anywhere. And this thing's just up there hovering above them and and it's hunting them. So that's back in the 1960s. So when people get all excited about drones, I says, well, <laughs> they've been around for a long time and they've been carrying torpedoes on top of that in a coaxial rotorhead type configuration. So in the early days, this right here is not a part of this machine. This would have sat on the deck several several feet away from this aircraft and because Again, we're talking the early days of drones. Everybody was afraid to just let this thing lift off the deck on its own and go fly and find a submarine. So they wanted a a human to take these controls here and fly this aircraft off the deck. And then once they got it about a hundred yards away, then they'd push the button and let it go off on its own. Same thing when this aircraft was uh, through with its mission, it would come back, it would park itself in a hover about a hundred yards off the deck the human then would take over, bring it in, and land it on the deck. Even though it was perfectly capable of doing itself, everybody felt good that there was human intervention there.